Hello, and welcome to episode 189 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. I have some exciting news that I wanted to share, which is that The Modern Manager is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts in the world, and that is according to Listen Notes, the best podcast search and ranking site. When I saw this, I was so excited. So I wanted to say a huge thank you to you for listening to the show, for sticking with me week after week, and most importantly, for investing in yourself as a manager. My mission is to make work a place where everyone gets to be their best selves and do their best work. And that wouldn't be possible without you taking the time to listen and learn and then showing up with your team and doing the hard work that managers do every day. So thank you. And of course, a warm welcome to Lindsay S., Susan H., and Nezreen B. to the Modern Manager membership. I would love to support you even more than I already do through the show, and membership is one of the easiest and most affordable ways to do that. Starting at just $5 a month, you get direct access to me and other members through our members-only Slack group. I personally respond to every question asked in the group, and that's only one of the many membership resources you get access to all designed to help you up your manager game even more. To learn more about membership options, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. Now, today's guest is Laura Krista. Laura is the author of The Business of We. She's also a leading cross-cultural consultant with more than 30 years of experience bridging gaps in diverse workplaces. She has worked with Fortune 500 companies on four continents, helping thousands of professionals build trust across us versus them differences based on nationality, ethnicity, race, religion, age, and any factor of identity. Her We Building framework provides practical and actionable insights for creating a more inclusive and productive world. Laura and I talk about how to understand cultural differences from norms and behaviors to mindsets and how to bring people together across that us versus them divide. Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Welcome, Laura. It is such a pleasure to have you on The Modern Manager today. Thank you so much. I feel like next time we'll have to do this in person since we both live in the same area, which will be really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. So we are going to talk about cultural norms and bridging differences. And I've talked a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion on the show. Longtime listeners will know this is one of my favorite topics that we touch on again and again because there's just so much there. But the dimension I want to talk about today is really around the, the cultural piece and the cultural norms because there's a lot we can do as individuals, but then there's also the kind of environment that we are swimming around in. So maybe you could start by explaining what do you see or kind of how do you define culture and cultural norms and cultural differences? So this oh, wait. 
this is in English, right? I hope it's in English because I did not understand that. I'm totally showing off, but I was just saying in Japanese, you know, it's using a different language because that is a clear, obvious example of different cultural norms. My career started um, at Honda Motor Company in Japan when I was 22, and I was the first and only American woman working with about 3,000 Japanese professionals in Tokyo. So I was immersed in this very different environment. So the idea of the norms of behavior, the way people dressed, the literally the language we spoke, there were all these differences that were very visible or you could hear these differences. And this is one of the really important messages about we building is that there are visible norms of behavior and invisible norms of behavior. And if you, a manager, have not done the work to learn and see invisible data or invisible norms, you will still cause problems. You still will have misunderstandings. And if you do invest time and understanding, then you can get great success. Well, first of all, I'm so impressed with your Japanese. I wish I could speak (laughs) another language like that. But in terms of this visible and invisible cultural norms, this is really intriguing to me because I get the way that we dress or the way that we talk, right? Those things are very obvious. But what are some of these invisible norms that maybe are less obvious and and Mm -hmm. we don't really notice how they're showing up and impacting us every day? Okay, I would love to give you a very specific example that I learned in Japan that I think probably everyone can relate to. And it's rather insignificant in its, you know, how meaningful it is, but I think it illustrates this point. And the topic is chopsticks. Okay. (laughs) So chopsticks are very frequently used in Japan and many other countries. And most people know that, or if you visit a country like Japan, you immediately see that in a restaurant you get chopsticks, all right? So that's a kind of visible example. When you spend time in Japan, you learn that there are certain ways you use chopsticks that are appropriate and not appropriate. For example, if you have a bowl of, let's say, rice, and you needed to move away from the table for a minute, if you stuck your chopsticks straight up into the rice and just stepped away from the table, that would be considered very, very rude. Sticking your chopsticks straight up in rice is only a practice that is used in relation to funerals in Japan. So in day-to-day eating and meals, you just don't do that. So that's a a small example of an invisible norm that you might not know. And if you keep spending time and you share meals with Japanese people, you'll learn even more. Uh, Another example of this is that I lived with a host family as a college student. You know, when I worked in Japan, I would often eat lunch with my Japanese colleagues. And I learned, and maybe you know this, I don't know, but when there is a common plate and you are eating with chopsticks, before you take food off the common plate, like that's in the middle of the table, you are supposed to turn your chopsticks around so that the part that you've been using, you know, to put food in your own mouth is not touching the common food, right? That That's a nice hygienic practice. Have you ever heard of that one? I have not, but it makes so much sense. 
right? Okay. And then I have even one more level of invisible information. And that is this. Let's say you have a group of people you eat with frequently and you are practicing the hygienic practice, right? You're turning your chopsticks around and taking the common food and turning it back before you eat. At some point, if they feel a certain level of connectedness with you, you will start to turn your chopsticks around and someone will say, oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. And that is a moment of them communicating, you're one of us. Basically, we'll share your our germs with you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yes. And what I'm picking up on this is that there is a depth of information behind what might otherwise be seen as just a behavior, that it's not enough to just observe the behavior and do the behavior, but there's actually so much built up behind it. That's the invisible part that even if you noticed people were turning their chopsticks or not, you may not understand why or Mm -hmm. why some are doing it, others aren't, and when it's appropriate to do it in which ways. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Another important aspect to this is that you don't have to like or agree with the information you discover. And you may choose never to stop turning your chopsticks around. Um, But knowing that information is what's critical is because then you can make informed choices. So I'm thinking now about the fact that you were kind of one person inside of this other culture and I think for most of us, we'd say it's you know pretty obvious that the best thing would be for you to try to conform to that culture. Mm-hmm. But when I think about organizations, do we have that same kind of this is the organization's culture and everyone should conform to that culture? Or is it a little bit more give and take that's happening? Well, I think if you want to have an inclusive culture in your organization, which many of us do. I mean, basically, it's a fiduciary responsibility for every organization in the 21st century. And most likely, you're going to have people who are not all the same. There's just the population demographics cause us to have more diverse spaces. So if you have that, you know, desire to be inclusive, and you have a lot of different people, I think you do need to broaden the idea of what is the norm in your company. You need to take into consideration a lot of different needs that are both, again, visible and invisible. I mean, even if we just look at the example of, say, you know, 50 years ago, where a lot of the employees were men who did not bear you know, child rearing responsibilities in, in the United States. And, you know, a lot of workplaces did not have policies or managers who would even think about, you know, having uh, allowances for people to, you know, drop off their kids at school before coming to work and, and things like that. So that's a kind of obvious historical example of where companies have adjusted quite a bit to include a lot of women who are working, a lot of men who are parenting, actively parenting. So I I think, yes, getting back to your great question, it's important to consider the population that is in your organization and 
ask yourself if the cultural norms of your organization, if the the literal uh, rules, if the unspoken rules are meeting the needs of that population. So let's talk about that population for a second, because there's the obvious cultural diversity that comes when we have international teams or we have people from different countries of origin on our team here in whatever country you happen to be in. But that's not the only way that cultural differences show up, right? Mm -hmm. It's the most obvious way. And it's one that's very easy for people to talk about. And so I like using that example, but our cultures are established and informed by so many aspects of our identities. Our country and our language are just part of what informs any human's identity. So, you know, your age, your gender, your gender orientation, your education, geography, your life experience. I mean, so many things inform a cultural identity. So it's just much too narrow to think of culture as related to international differences. So, you know, my experience, and I'm guessing that of many managers has been that the culture kind of works for us in our organizations, right? And we have macro cultures of the organization and we have more micro cultures of our team. But generally, as a manager, you get to have some influence on that culture. And so it can feel maybe like it feels good on your team, but maybe bad within the full organization. Mm. But that's not the case for everyone, right? Not everybody always feels like they have the ability to influence their team or their organization culture. And not everyone always feels like that culture works for them. Mm. So I know in your work and in your research, you talk about this us versus them kind of experience. So can you elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. Well, in any organization I have ever either been a part of, visited, consulted with, there are us versus them dynamics. I mean, the classic examples, blue collar versus white collar, uh, sales versus marketing, uh, New York versus LA, right? So there are these gaps that have always existed and to a degree they will continue to exist. But there are also gaps related to all of the aspects of identity that we were just talking about, different ages, you know, millennials versus boomers. You know, there, there are so many different, gaps that are related to aspects of one's identity. And the key thing for every manager to do is to measure and assess which of these gaps are inconsequential, which are not causing any trouble, which are just friendly, you know, somewhat maybe friendly competitive uh, divisions, and which of those gaps are causing measurable negative outcomes, outcomes in negative outcomes in the forms of complaints, customer problems, you know, missing job opportunities because departments aren't interacting or missing innovation. I know I've heard stories from clients where, for example, the younger generation that, you know, there's a a characterization that often they're very, uh, very tech savvy and sometimes boomers, and I'm, I'm not quite a boomer, but I understand boomers a little better. Um, you know, people say over 50 can get very frustrated easily with a younger generation. And, you know, oh, they don't do this, they don't do that. 
and fail to understand all the things they do do well and can offer. So one story is um, in my book is about an over 50 manager who makes a really good effort to understand the young people in his business. And he gets all the um, like Venmo and PayPal. And, you know, when they all go out, he's not using cash. He's, you know, he's using the apps they're using. And he starts to develop a relationship with one younger person in particular. And then that younger guy actually makes a suggestion to the older guy about using an app for transcription purposes. So this older guy would often conduct interviews and he would spend hours transcribing them. And this app that the younger guy suggested to him gave him, you know, a great tool that he had never heard of that had an immediate positive impact on his work. So these are just some small examples of how when you bridge the gap, you're not only avoiding problems and making sure there's not tension, you're actually getting positive, measurable results. Well, and that's what everyone is all searching for, right? Like we were trying to create places where our team members get to be their best selves and do their best work. And we can't do that if there are these divides among us that mm. are keeping people from feeling like they can contribute, they can ask questions, they can share ideas, all of that. So what as managers, should we be doing to first just become more aware of where these cultural gaps might be and where they might be harmful? Like I'm wondering if that's if it's up to us to just identify that or if there's a specific process or a way that you recommend we go about starting to identify and understand where these cultural gaps might exist on our team. Well, the easy way to assess whether they are harmful or not is to look at the outcomes you know, did you have a, a missed delivery to a customer? And if so, why did that happen? Did it happen because, you know, two people don't have a good trusting relationship? You know, what are the causes for the various problems? Certainly complaints to HR give you immediate and direct information about the gaps that are meaningful and, and, and can even cause legal problems. I mean, that's why this topic is a fiduciary responsibility for every manager. So I guess that's, that's my immediate response. Does that answer your question? Yes. I guess I'm also wondering, you know, if I'm a manager and I feel like, Hey, this culture is working pretty well. Like, yeah, we have like a nice friendly banter with the people over in the other department. And then I look around my team and I see, yeah, some of us are parents, some aren't, you know, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we have, you know, one or two colleagues in different cities or who grew mm -hmm. up in different countries or, but you know, it seems like everything's working well. Should I just take mm -hmm. my own word for it and be like, yeah, we're, we're good. I got, I got nothing to do here. Or mm -hmm. do I need to have some conversations with my team? Do I need to somehow start to investigate, am I missing something because the culture works for me, but maybe it doesn't work for everyone? Yeah, I, I think that's one thing we have learned from this increased awareness as a result of, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, the murder of George Floyd. There, there was a lot that the cultural majority, you know, the white cultural majority in corporate America just did not understand so I think it's very safe to, to assume that there's more for us to learn. And one of the most important steps I think any manager can take is to measure themselves in relation to a very specific target group. So 
in my book and in all of my work, one of the most important tools is a list of 10 simple questions. I call this the us versus them self-assessment. And it probably takes about, you know, two or three minutes at the most to complete. It's a free resource, I will say. I have it on my website for anybody who wants to use it. And they are 10 simple yes or no questions. And you take this self-assessment in relation to a specific cultural group. So let's say you are trying to build uh, or trying to assess your level of understanding with a different age generational uh, group. You know, let's say you're a younger person, you're trying to understand boomers or the opposite or whatever it is. You ask yourself these 10 questions as it relates to that specific group. And then you get a score. The score is from zero to 10. The goal is to increase your score over time because it is face-to-face interactions of increasing depth that provide us with the visible and invisible data that will help us narrow these gaps and create a we culture. So that's what I recommend for everyone. All right. So now let's say I have a sense of where there might be some gaps. Mm -hmm. What do I start doing to take some initial steps to bridging those gaps. Mm -hmm. So the 10 questions on the us versus them assessment, they can become action items. So any of the questions where you get a no answer can become a point of action. I I think the very first question is very simple. It is, um, you know, have you ever, have you ever met somebody who identifies with this culture? What again, whatever you have decided this culture is. And most people will get a yes answer on that first question. And then it goes all the way to uh, the last question is, have you ever had a trusted colleague level relationship with a person who identifies with this culture for over five years? So you can see there's a wide range. And, and this is just one way to measure your level of integration and interaction with a particular group. It's not the only way, it's just a way, but you you can start then to reflect on yourself and then take steps, you know, trying to seek out exposure and interaction with people who represent the them group as you have defined it. So I want to shift gears a little bit because another piece that you touch on in your book is about that you know we can say or do things that are unintentionally harmful to our mm-hmm. colleagues because we don't understand their culture and our cultural norms don't typically say that this particular thing is so bad mm-hmm. and it's you know it seems like part of what managers need to do is just get comfortable with the idea that we're going to make mistakes mm-hmm. because That's life. And we can't know everything about everyone's culture. We can't know everything Mm -hmm. about cultural sensitivities. Mm -hmm. So we have to get comfortable knowing we're going to make mistakes. But what else do we need to do when those mistakes happen? How do we help move past them so that they don't become kind of continual problems within our team? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, of course, building up trust and being able to show vulnerability, you know, being able to apologize, to take account, be accountable. If you do say something or do something that causes distress when you actually were trying to avoid that, um, I think that can go a really long way. 
well, what if it's someone else on your team? Like, what have you now noticed as you're developing your cultural awareness and you're starting to bridge some gaps and you notice that someone on your team may not be as, you know, aware as you are becoming? How do you bring others along in this journey? Mm-hmm. So I've I've come across that. And um, I think, for example, there are a lot of maybe there are a lot of folks who are not quite on board specifically when it comes to topics of race. I've found that this really is, it's a topic that makes people uncomfortable. I think it particularly makes white people uncomfortable. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my case, I grew up during a, you know, a colorblind culture silent era where you are not supposed to talk about anybody's race. So even naming race, uh, identifying your own race, identifying somebody else's race can be uncomfortable for people. So one of the strategies I use, and this is something I think any manager can do, is talking about, my starting point is talking about how do we build a we culture? And a we culture is broad, it's inclusive, it's not specifically related to any one of the cultural dimensions we discussed, but everybody can relate to the topic of us versus them because it's everywhere and everybody has experienced it. One of the first questions I usually ask people in a workshop setting is, uh, when have you felt like the outsider? When were you the them group? And virtually everybody can can articulate an experience and then start. So using that experience, right, we, we've all felt like the outsider. And, and sometimes it's, you know, rather inconsequential, but oftentimes it's not. But at, if we start with that shared experience of feeling like an outsider, that is a common starting point that can lead us to a recognition that these dynamics can have a negative impact on the organization, especially for people who feel like an outsider every day. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And we can all relate to that experience and gives us some common ground to work forward from. And I wonder, as we're starting to have these conversations with our team members, some of which can be, you know, positive bonding experiences, right? Starting to just kind of recognize what we're all aiming for, having that positive work experience. Are there any things that managers should specifically avoid doing that can kind of backfire or any mistakes that mm. are are common that we should just keep in mind to try to steer weir- steer away from so that we don't end up shooting ourselves in the foot as we do this work? Hmm. Well, I've never been a big fan of shaming anyone. You know, it's in, in, it's easy, I think, in these spaces to feel like you don't want to speak up because you don't want to cause any trouble. So I think being a manager who can model the ability to self-reflect, to look at the choices you have made until this point in your career uh, and say, um, you know, I'm going to work on this or I'm going to uh, try to expand the notion of who belongs are good ideas. It, it, I'll, I'll say that if people, if managers particularly, if they have two things, they can bridge any gap. And then this models, this is a good model for everybody else. And the two things are a genuine wish 
to bridge a specific gap. And secondly, is the ability to honestly reflect on the choices you've made in your own life and then share that with other people. I mean, I think this idea of being authentic and committed to creating a stronger culture is so important because if it doesn't feel authentic, if it doesn't feel genuine, right, which I think sometimes you know, when we talk about culture and organizations, it can feel kind of just like, all right, we're going to write some stuff down and post it on the wall, but mm-hmm. we're not we're not being meaningful with mm-hmm. it. So I think that's so important. And this idea that if we're going to make changes to our culture, it's not to the detriment of anyone, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think this is a fear that I will say I have definitely heard and, you know, occasionally felt when we talk about trying to create a more inclusive culture is the, mm-hmm. well, if I like the culture as it is, then, mm-hmm. you know, and it's working for me, then it changes. And what does that mean? Now I'm going to feel less included, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. this is really about those people over there rather than making it better for all of us. Right. And that's such a scarcity model. And it's such a narrow way of viewing things. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the recent book by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us. Yes. And, you know, really your question really, or your comment gets to her thesis, which is this idea of scarcity and how we all suffer when we're not contributing to the common good. You know, she uses the great example of swimming pools in America, public swimming pools that were built in the, I think starting in the the 40s, late 40s and 50s, and how those swimming pools built with public funds were then utilized by the public, but the white public in so many communities reacted in violent ways when non-white, primarily black people wanted to use this public resource that their tax dollars had contributed to as well. And instead of sharing this resource, instead of whole communities uh, being able to enjoy this, you know, refreshing uh, new form of relaxation, um, some communities decided to, to fill up the pools with dirt and they covered them up and nobody got to use it. They rather, they were, the the scarcity model and the fear of other was so great. And and this was not just one or two pools. There are many, many stories about this happening. They filled up the pool and nobody got to enjoy it. And so that's, that's the ultimate negative outcome of us versus them dynamics. We all suffer. And the ultimate outcome of a we mindset and a we culture is that we all get the success. We all win. Well, I think that is such a great place for us to end because it is really a powerful image and so true, right? That when we're talking about something that's working, we have to ask, who is it working for? Mm -hmm. And instead of being afraid of change Mm -hmm. and therefore causing negative experience for everyone, we can actually embrace the opportunities that come from bringing us all together and creating a more inclusive culture. And then look at that as being beneficial to everyone, including us, even if we're part of that majority culture, even if we don't think there's anything that needs to get fixed because we're not the only ones that matter. Absolutely. And I I also just say that it, it is my life's work to inspire a rebuilding revolution where individuals take action to bridge us versus them gaps so that we can create a safer, more welcoming and productive 
community, but I cannot do this alone. I need your help, Mimi. I need all of your listeners to help. And I, I really think that together we can make a difference. So powerful. I'm glad to be part of this journey with you. Now, as we wrap up, can you tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person so fantastic? Oh, yes. My very first boss at Honda Motor Company is a man named Shige Yoshida. And he, we were different generations, different ethnicities, races, genders. I mean, so many differences. But he mentored me from the beginning and continues to be a mentor in my life. You know, neither of us, he retired from the company. I left the company. And, you know, more than 30 years later, he's still someone I turn to and see. And he's just a wonderful person who modeled we building before I knew what to call it. Oh, sounds amazing. And where can we keep up with you, Laura, and learn more about your work and get a copy of your book? Well, you can get my book on online resources, all the usual ones. Uh, LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me. I often do webinars and share articles and things like that. So connecting with me there is probably the best place. Well, thank you again so much for sharing all of your wisdom today. Thank you. Laura has offered an audiobook version of The Business of We. This guest bonus is available to members of the Modern Manager community. To learn more and join, go to themodernmanager.com slash join. All the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rockstar boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.